And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Tranmere are over the hill. Robbie to Swindon. Foul play? And Birmingham have their dong out. You thought the season was over? <laughs> it's the EFL. And this is the Totally Football League show. Extra time in association with Paddy Power. Hello, thank you so much for joining myself, Ali Maxwell, and with me, George Ellick. George, we had planned a nice show, a quiet show, a thoughtful show, a season review show, and then everything went crazy on the managerial front, among other things. Less merry-go-round and more express wash and dry this week. You know when a CEO departure is in the news, it's because they're either incredibly popular or considered to be a complete dong. And then there's Derby. Derby, Derby, Derby. So, George, we thought it's high time to dust off an old going up, going down feature that long-time listeners will remember. It's not the back pages. And now it's time for Not the Back Pages. Yeah, this is not the back pages. Some of the biggest stories in football, in our opinion, that are unlikely to get the column inches on the back of your newspaper. We mentioned some of the headlines at the top. So let's begin in League Two, where there have been more sackings than at Santa's workshop. Tramir Rovers have sacked Keith Hill this, despite being in the playoffs. Yes, the Paliotis have decided the best tactic here just nine days before kickoff against Morecambe is to cross their fingers and their toes and hope that the so-called new manager bounce will see them through. There were also departures for Truman and Sellers. That show is over at Bradford City, as well as the Brian Dutton caretaker regime at Walsall. But Gary Bowyer has got the job permanently with Salford City after steering them to the cusp of the playoffs, but not quite within them. He will take charge, at least to start next season, at Salford City and has signed a two-year deal. New League Two arrivals Swindon Town are interested in Robbie Fowler becoming their new boss, but quite frankly, that's not the least of their worries. And in the Championship, Blue Noses were ecstatic to learn that their CEO, who goes by the name of Dong, had resigned. Things are looking up at St Andrews. More on that later. Ding dong. And Preston have permanently appointed Frankie McAvoy as their head coach. Never has anything gone wrong with interim managers going full-time, Ali. Never, ever. But the big news is, as ever, at Pride Park. Yeah, indeed, it is Ali. And joining us to try and work out WTF is going on. It's the Athletics' current hardest working man. It's Ryan Conway. And Ryan, I'm going to start with this tweet from a man called Dan. On Saturday afternoon, I naively said, at least Derby can't ruin my mood until August. Since then, we've lost an appeal to the EFL, had to pay Richard Keogh 2.3 million, found out prospective owner had less money in his account than I have in my pocket. Quite jealous of Dan there. 
and it's only Tuesday. It's now Thursday. How are you doing? Yeah, it's a pretty good week, isn't it, overall? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> I mean, what's it, what's it, I mean, since that, that final whistle on Saturday where Derby were staying up, what's the aftermath been like for you, both as somebody who I assume has a pretty strong affinity now to the club and also working so close to it as well? Well, there are several stages of drinking that you go through in life, I think. You, you, drink, you, drink, to, you drink to celebrate, you drink out of relief, um, and then you just drink just because you think, what, what, what even are we doing on this floating marble around the, around the, um, in space? Um, and I've kind of gone through those, those three stages, um, almost like the seven stages of grief. I've just sped through them all, um, <laughs> to, in, <laughs> and we're only, at, we're only at Thursday. Yeah, it's been, it's been nuts, man. It's been absolutely crazy. Um, now, obviously, the Derby staying up was only, you know, kicking several cans further down the road. It was good that, obviously, it was good that they stayed in the division, but it, it didn't mask the other things that were going on at the club. You know, the ownership stuff, um, the in terms of the EFL appeal um, and in terms of on the pitch, how they retool this squad, you know, because Wayne Rooney's has been talking consistently about he wants to make a run at promotion next year. He isn't doing that with this squad. So the fact that they stayed up and all the relief and, you know, fans were outside, not all of this in a bubble was great. Um, it just temporarily distracted from major issues that, that still that still remain. And obviously now the, the bill is, 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 is coming for those issues. Well, let's start with the EFL, you know, the story, it's basically been the biggest story around Derby over the last few days around the sanctions. You know, the EFL's appeal was upheld. Um, there's been talk of a potential points deduction, possibly initially this season, but now it looks more likely to be next season. For those who have been living under an EFL rock, can you kind of explain what happened, well, why it's come about and what is likely to happen um, in the, the kind of near, near future in terms of sanctions for Derby County? Yeah, so in January of 2020, um, the EFL charged Derby on two counts of um, financial fair play breaches. One was the um, valuation of, of Pride Park at 8 million, and the other was their amortisation policy. Um, now, Derby were found innocent on the charge of the stadium sale. Um, and at the time, I believe they were just warned about their amortisation policy, basically um, how Derby amortised the players and their value was not the same as how other clubs do. So a straight line policy is you sign a player for 3 million on a three year contract and each year his contract reduces by 1 million, um, you know, and to, to eventually until it becomes zero. What Derby were doing were applying residual value to the player, basically giving them a value right up until, you know, the last year of their contract. So they were saying that the player could still be worth 3 million in the final year of, of, of their deal. It was basically, it, 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 it was an accounting trick that helped them, you know, bank a, 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 a profit. Now, at the time, it was, it, you know, it was believed that this was more sort of against the spirit of the law rather than against the law itself. They were kind of at first warned about that. Um, and now it turns out that they have been, that is the that is the appeal that has stuck. And that's the thing that, um, that the EFL have, have, have got them on and have won on. Normally, in for a football club, this would be the kind of the one big story surrounding them. But with Derby County, it's one of a few. And we've got to talk about Eric Alonso, who's been rumoured to be taking over the club for a couple of months now. And in classic, you know, this is why I love the EFL. Eric Alonso posted a picture of his living room and somebody found that it was actually taken from a TikTok video, um, suggesting it probably isn't actually Eric Alonso bragging about 
um, the the lushness of his living room in in response to questions about how deep his pockets are. I mean, what is going on there at the moment with this you know possible takeover of the club? No, it's pretty funny, isn't it? Like the, the, that, <laughs> not 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 this whole take, that that specific TikTok Incredible. thing is is pretty funny. Um, if you didn't <laughs> if you didn't laugh, then you you're crying. Um, but um, but yeah, so it it seems that the proof of funds. I was always led to believe that proof of funds were, were shown pretty early on when Eric Alonso um, had registered, you know, serious interest in the club. Um, the sticking point, um, it seems now, is sort of question marks over where the where the money is 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 coming from, who is financing the deal, and and things of that nature. Um, and obviously, Matt Slater has written a absolutely terrific piece. Um, on the athletic sort of breaking down the takeover and the ins and outs and the question marks and 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 all those sorts of of, of things and I think very interesting um, thing that is in there is he spoke to uh, a source that that basically said you know when takeovers go through normally this is why you don't hear anything about it it's just done and dusted you know it's always mm. it's all been checked the money's all there they don't they're not giving interviews they're not going on the record they're certainly not going on talk sport and things of that nature um, the fact that you know Eric was is and was and has been doing these these sorts of things were, were, were kind of major red flags for for quite a few people you know sort of just looking on at the looking from the outside in at the deal that that know how these sorts of things work and a and a, and a process now obviously mr onzo has uh, has deleted his twitter account after his his little tiktok thing but also you know after his spat with uh was it craig hope daily mail journalist uh, yeah as as well you know, there were claims that they were trying to refinance Pride Park, claims that subsequently with the counterclaim that it's believed that, no, that's not the case. It's believed that, that you know, Alonso just wants the the debt in, in his name and, and and all those sorts of, it's it's a mess. It's an awful lot to sort through. And as, and as Slater put at the, the, the top of his piece, it, it feels like a lot like the bees that I take over were, it, it seems to be slowly fizzling out. Yeah. Um, and then the final thing we need to discuss, uh, if uh, a possible points deduction and a, a second collapse takeover in, in a matter of months isn't enough, is the Richard Keogh case where he was awarded £2.3 million in terms of compensation after his contract was terminated uh, after that absolute mess last season um, in terms of the the aftermath of a of a fairly messy night out, it's fair to say, Ryan. What can you tell us about the process here and what it means for Derby and what it means for Kia? I mean, th- this process has been incredibly lengthy, very, very, very lengthy. My understanding was that the, the hope was that this would be wrapped by January last year. Now, the reason it has taken so long is because of, you know, the appeals, Keogh, it was reported by, by the mail, Keogh had, had won the appeal in, in in January, had won his case in January. Derby then heavily contested that. And obviously that has brought us to to, to this point. Um, yeah, I think it's it's basically the payout for the rest of of, of Keogh's contract, right? Um, that's mm. that's basically all it is. And I I imagine, you know, damages and whatever legal costs as well, Derby will be will be footing those as well. But I mean, yeah, it was he was always going to appeal the decision because he was the only one that would got that got sacked and the other two didn't. Now, yeah, this you know this is an issue that it's you either sit on one this side of the fence or you sit on the other side of the fence, and there is no in between. Um, but I, I always think that there has to be room for some kind of grey area and nuance in in there because um, Richard Keogh technically didn't commit a crime. He was stupid, 
no one is disputing that. Nobody yeah. is disputing that. But he wasn't the one that was in court on drink driving charges. He was just incredibly stupid. What was he negligent in his duties as a captain? Absolutely. Um, should he have got in the car? Absolutely not. Did he commit a crime? No. Um, and he and yet he was the one that was sacked. Tom Lawrence wasn't. Mason Bennett wasn't. Uh, and this, you know, I'm not calling for them to have been sacked. Everyone has a has a right to move on. This this was Mel Morris and the club's decision, right? This is and he was the one who suffered a really serious injury as well, and therefore couldn't play football. Exactly, and 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 the belief was that that was part of the reason that they that they sacked him. That was because of his actions, because of the gross negligence. Um, he was unable to perform his duties as a football player for which he was paid to do. Therefore, Derby saw grounds to to sack him. Um, but I think the fact that they didn't sack the other two who were you know, convicted of the crime of, of of drink driving was always going to play into Richard's favour when appealing the decision. Yeah, I think it some some will some many many will say that it's ridiculous that he that he got a payout. I, I think under all the circumstances, um this was the only obvious conclusion that he was going to win that case based on all the things that I've that I've just said. Yeah, I mean, Derby County often feels more like a, a soap opera than a football club. It must feel like you're kind of covering Harchester Rovers at, at some point in Dream Team, but uh, I must... kind of feels like you're on hallucinogenics half the time, I think. <laughs> I mean, definitely, although I think a lot of things have changed since Monday, I would point the listener in the direction of your brilliant piece that was out on Monday. This can never happen to Derby County again inside a nightmare season where it talks about all the different things that have happened over the course of the season. And Ryan, every time we speak to you on this podcast, we talk about how ridiculous it is, all the stuff you have to cover. And I'm always scared about when we next talk to you, what we'll be discussing then uh, in a few weeks or months ahead of next season. Uh, But thank you as ever for taking the time to speak to us. And fingers crossed you get something of a break at some point over the course of the summer. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. And I'm not coming back on the show unless we're talking about nice things. Ryan Conway of The Athletic there. And that's everything we think that's happened in the last four days in the EFL. We're now going to tackle the whole season. We're going to bring you some winners and losers of the EFL next. Old Trafford security. Uh, yeah, this is an anonymous tip-off to say that if the Liverpool game isn't cancelled and Liverpool don't automatically get awarded the three points, missing corner flags will be the least of your worries. Is that you, Jürgen? What? Uh, no, no, my name is uh, Dave uh, Englishman, yeah. Liverpool desperately need points and it seems they'll try anything to get a result. Just as well, we're offering money back as a free bet if one leg of your 4 plus 4 decker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg on an exclusive exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply, 18 plus, be gamble aware. <laughs> On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. Regular listeners to this show will know that throughout this season we've been dishing out our Tuffle Setmas. That stands for the Totally Football League show Extra Time Midweek Awards. And now it's time to bring it all together to tie it up in a pretty bow and give out some winners and losers of each league. We'll start in the championship with some winners. Now, there are some very obvious winners, the sorts of people and teams and clubs and managers that we've spoken about pretty much every week on this show, such as Ivan Tony, the entire Norwich team, and Emmy Buendia, after whom the Player of the Season Award should just be named forever now. So what we're going to do is remind you of some of the maybe unsung heroes from the Championship and also some of the people and teams who will want to quickly forget that this season ever happened. George, I said we're going to go niche. I think your first winner of the Championship season will set the bar, will set the bar pretty high for that. <laughs> 
it's Jonathan Woodgate. Is that niche? I think it's. I think it's the obvious call. I mean, this is a I guy. Think if you gave every listener five guesses as to who you would say is the winner of the championship season, this name would not have come up. This would be an incredibly boring segment if it was Norwich, Watford, losers, <laughs> Rotherham, Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jonathan Woodgate has to be. Anyway, I'm, I'm, this is outside the box thinking where you've got a guy who was assistant manager to Tony Pulis at Middlesbrough. You know, who's who's obviously got a big reputation as a player, gets the manager's job at Borough, and it basically couldn't have gone worse. He's sacked, not in disgrace, but sacked from his boyhood club after taking a team who were just on the brink of the playoffs down into a a relegation battle. And then he leaves, Neil Warnock comes in and takes them back to the brink of the playoffs again. I mean, it is, in a microcosm, the worst possible managerial start you can make. If you asked me or you, two people who think we know our EFL stuff, where he would pop up next in the playoffs, in the championship, managing a Bournemouth side who probably have a squad value that eclipses everybody else in the EFL, probably eclipses about the other 21 clubs who who weren't relegated last season combined in the EFL. He is definitely, definitely landed on his feet. It helps as well that he's done a pretty good job. You know, they were um, a side who initially under him didn't play particularly well, but as the season drew on, he was able to to go through a run of form, get the likes of Arno Danjuma operating at a very, very high level. And even though the form dropped off at the end of the season, that was when they were already in the playoffs. He is three victories or maybe even two victories away from being a Premier League manager next season. You know, we all often say when experienced um, managers or experienced coaches and managers come into a side when there's already a manager there, will the, the, the current incumbent be a bit concerned? I mean, with Jason Tyndall and Woodgate coming in to help him, it was literally two days before Tyndall was sacked and Woodgate came in. So it might be niche in your view, but if, you, if you're looking at somebody who's won the championship lottery this season, Jonathan Woodgate is your man. You seem to think I was slagging you off there, which I wasn't I do. doing. I was just I'm making angry. the point. I was just making the point that having said this was going to be a fairly niche segment, you've then kicked us off, turned it straight up. You've turned it up to... to, to uh... I've gone with a Galactico. Yeah, fair enough. Well, I've gone with Nathan Jones and Luton. Uh, they are a big winner of the championship season for me. Uh, having just avoided relegation last season, they finished in the top half of the championship this time around. A great leap, that. And their highest finish since 2005-2006. So a magnificent effort all round. Now, following that 05-06 season, Luton then suffered three straight relegations. Now, that wasn't just footballing incompetence, of course, but issues off the field as well. And that ain't going to happen. Either the off-field issues, because Luton, from my perspective, looked like one of the most stable and well-run clubs at this level, but also the man at the heart of it in terms of the football, Nathan Jones, the man that steered Luton to League Two promotion, to the brink of League One promotion before leaving and coming back after that spell at Stoke. An ill-fated spell, an unsuccessful spell, certainly, with his tail between his legs, saving Luton from relegation last season against all the odds and straight into the top half this time. Uh, he he kind of ticks every box, or at least in this job he does, in terms of coaching, the way that he's improved certain players, uh, players who were League Two players to all intents and purposes and can now consider themselves championship-level players. Tactical acumen, well, any manager that puts together a team that ends up being greater than the sum of its parts is clearly a, a very good tactician, and that's certainly the case with this Luton Town side. But most of all for me, just a whirlwind, relentless, a demanding character, and that was on show in his brilliant end-of-season briefing, which Luton Town shared on their social media channels this weekend. We've achieved something 
moderate in terms of what we have the position we've had, but we've shown that we progress again this year. A man that simply refuses to let any of his players or staff show any complacency whatsoever. It's similarly whole high standards that I hold you to, George. Who's your next winner from the championship season? Yeah, more more of a collective winner this, and it's got to be fans of Birmingham City because it's been a very difficult couple of years to be a Birmingham fan. Um, they've gone through managers, they've gone through a fair bit of um, financial, not hardship, but overspending and what comes after that too. And it feels to me like Birmingham City fans may... They may have got their club back a little bit. You look at who's in the dugout now. It is Lee Bowyer, a player that they will associate with a much more successful time in their recent history. A player who had a great affinity with the fans, who came in after Ita Karanka and oversaw a run of five victories in eight games. Um, and then off the pitch, as you mentioned a couple of times already in this podcast, I think you just like saying his name. The CEO, Dong, has has left a, a man who was eminently associated with the issues that Birmingham have, have suffered over the last couple of years, whose tenure will be associated with poor recruitment, with poor managerial recruitment, with poor performances on the pitch. Now, this is a Birmingham City side that I think fans expect to be challenging towards the top end of the table, but the groundwork has not been laid for that. Now, if next season Birmingham fans are allowed back in, they are going to be, depending, of course, on who comes in to replace um, Dong as CEO, they're going to be coming back to see a, a Birmingham City that has it is starting to lay the groundwork to be the club that they want it to be. You know, I think all football fans, when they do return to stadiums, the club is going to be in a very different place to where it was when they left because that is the nature of the game. A season is a hell of a long time in terms of, of where a, a club can go. And for Birmingham, it feels like, to me, like their club is in a much, much better position to build upon this and go and get some success. So I'm delighted for them. I'm, I'm really excited to see how Boya gets on next season. I'm excited to see how the club has managed over the summer. They need to recruit well, and the proof will be in the pudding, I guess, with that one. But it does feel to me like if you're looking for a fan base who can be much more positive now than they were back in in you know July when, when last season ended for them, it's got to be Birmingham. So um, yeah, all credit to them couple of managers uh, a set of fans how about a player to finish us off I'm going to give an award for a winner of the championship season to Kiefer Moore or to give him his full name which I think we should always do Kiefer Roberto Francisco Moore that is <laughs> his full name because he's had an amazing season and, and possibly slightly under the radar because there were some strikers who scored more goals than him, most notably your Tonys, your Armstrongs, your Pookies. But hitting 20 goals in the championship for the first time in his career is made even better by his footballing journey to get to this point. I'll, I'll give you the potted history. Moore had to leave his first club Torquay United because they folded the academy. He started his career scoring for Truro and Dorchester in the Conference South and then got a huge move all the way up to the Championship with Yeovil Town. And anyone who follows Yeovil Town knows what happened next, a double relegation. So Moore has to start again. He, he actually went to Viking in Norway for a short period and then back to Forest Green in the National League at the time. He made his first three appearances for them at centre-back. So at this stage, certainly not the striker that we now know and love. He missed the playoff final, which Forest Green lost because he ruptured his appendix a week before, 
pretty unusual footballer's injury that. And then he's not really first choice the season after that until he's sent to Torquay on loan, where he first started and scored five in four games. So he comes back to Forest Green. Within a week or two, he signs for Ipswich Town in the Championship. Again, rising three leagues, and they picked him up for just 10k. But in the end, Mick McCarthy, his current manager, of course, didn't really fancy him at that point. Only 11 appearances, none of them for more than 24 minutes. Went out to Rotherham on loan and banged them in in League One. And that's when he really started to um, flicker up on people's radars. He signed for Barnsley in January. Only scored four goals as they were relegated from the Championship to League One, but finally settled and scored 17 to fire Barnsley to promotion to the Championship. Then at Wigan, he scored 10 in the Championship last season and he started playing and scoring for Wales at that point as well and is now considered quite a key part of their team heading into the Euros. Not only that, he signed for the Capital Club of Cardiff City for £2 million last summer, which was considered a bit of a snip due to Wigan's financial situation, but also playing for Cardiff, the Welsh number nine, pressure on, you'd say. And he's dealt with it magnificently. 20 goals later, some of them brilliantly taken. He has to be considered one of the second tier's premier strikers now. His size, but his mobility and eye for goal as well added to that, make him an all-round threat. And there's not too much mileage on him if you look at his career appearances and minutes played, even though he's 28 now. So I think he could become a bit of a Cardiff cult hero for the next few years and hopefully leave his mark on the Euros as well. Kiefer Moore hasn't been widely celebrated, I don't think, and I want to make sure we do that before the end of the season. Sadly, we've got to talk about some of the losers of the championship season as well, George. You're kicking us off with a manager. Yeah, tricky this because you don't want to make enemies. And, and I think it's a case more of looking at, at managers who maybe have, whose star has fallen a bit. And it feels to me like Michael O'Neill and the job he's done at Stoke has been really disappointing. Stoke fans and, and Stoke as a club came into this season confident that in O'Neill, after the job he did at the back end of last season, um, were in a position to really kick on. They finished the season 14th after kind of flirting with the playoffs early on in the campaign. It's felt like their performances have got worse as the season's gone on. All the things that we think we know about a Michael O'Neill side, you know, pragmatic management, don't concede many goals. Well, they conceded 50 goals this season. That is amongst the the kind of top seven or eight teams in the division for goals conceded. Hard to beat, we say. Well, I mean, they lost 16 games. They've just been a very, very average side in this campaign with no real sign of progression either. He seems to be fairly immune from criticism. Uh, and I don't mean that in itself as a, crit- uh, as a criticism. I think Stoke fans <laughs> will be quick to point out that, you know, that the... He's had to pick up the pieces from some what they would consider some pretty shambolic management previously, whether it was Nathan Jones or Gary Rowett. But his record to Rowett is, is fairly similar. You know, he's got a 38% win rate. Rowett had a 31% win rate. It, it, it just doesn't feel to me like they're a side who are building up towards some kind of an assault on, on the playoffs. So this time last year, I'd have thought Stoke under O'Neill were one of the teams to watch. I now can't see any evidence under his management why they will be one of the teams looking to get back into the Premier League next season. So Michael O'Neill, my my first loser in the Championship. And if we think that Birmingham City fans have been winners this season, I'm afraid I think Sheffield Wednesday fans are losers. And that is not, haha, you're a loser. This is, you've (laughs) lost this season. Because the the big losers of a relegation like Sheffield Wednesday have suffered are, of course, the fans. And... It's just, it's just made me so angry, to be honest with you. They've been taken into League One, and I think 
95% of the reasons why come back to the owner of the club, Dejfon Chanziri. I would sum it up as weak leadership and a complete lack of strategy, which has allowed things to spiral out of control. Chanziri steers Sheffield Wednesday into the third tier with a poor squad of players and as a club operating at a huge loss, which is unclear if he can sustain, given reports of delayed wage payments in recent weeks and troubles getting money into the country, which he has talked about at length over the last year or so. Even in the so-called good times of 2015 to 2017, where they made the playoffs twice, it was clear that the spending of Chanziri, while eye-catching and no doubt celebrated as ambitious in some circles, was in fact reckless, was risky, was a gamble that didn't pay off. If Wednesday weren't going to achieve promotion to the Premier League, it was obvious they would get into serious difficulty. And so it came to pass. And over the last three seasons, Wednesday have been slowly suffocating at this level. Transfer embargoes, three of them, I think. No football strategy whatsoever. No responsibility being taken or accepted. And no real attempts to bring in the right sort of people to help them out. A recent Nancy Frostic piece on The Athletic has made that all very, very clear. And I would recommend that you read that. To top it off... A points deduction, which ultimately took them from just outside the relegation places on points gained on the pitch to very much within them when you minus six from that total, which came down to incompetence. A lot of people think that they were punished for selling the stadium back to themselves. That wasn't the case. The two independent panel hearings confirmed that the points deduction was imposed not because the sale of Hillsborough was outside of the rules, but simply because the paperwork associated with the sale was not submitted to the correct deadline. And I think that about sums it up, really. I have to admit, I'm feeling very pessimistic about Sheffield Wednesday moving down to League One right now. And that makes me desperately sad for their fans. Uh, I do like Darren Moore. I think he's as good a man as, e as ever to, to be in the dugout for them next season. But I cannot predict an immediate return with what's going on above him. So Sheffield Wednesday fans... The losers of the season through no fault of their own. Yeah, no fault of the Sheffield Wednesday fans for the situation they're in. But I think my next loser feels like they're very fortunate not to be in the position that Sheffield Wednesday find themselves in. It's Bristol City. And it's basically everybody associated with Bristol City. Again, I'm not in it by any stretch having a go at the fans, but it feels like they have had to deal with months of being a very, very poor football team. You know, you look at Dean Holden, the manager from the start of the season who oversaw four wins in, in their first four, Disco Dean, as we called him on this podcast when we had him on as well. Um, but he was, his job um, there didn't last too long as the form turned. And if you look at the, the championship table from mid-October, so basically from those last four games, Bristol City sitting in 23rd with just 39 points from those 42 games. They have been very, very poor. You look at key players who are losers due to the injuries they've sustained, Andy Vime and Jamie Patterson. You look at out-of-form players um, such as as Naki Wells, who hasn't scored the goals he'd expect to this season. Hanno Masengo probably hasn't progressed the way that Bristol City fans would want him to. You look at the ownership who made, I think, the regretful decision to to um, recruit Holden in the first place, uh, who have now brought in Nigel Pearson. And after a couple of early good performances, he's got the job for next season, but things didn't really go to plan in the back end of the season either. So it's hard to really look at him in any other way either. It feels like Bristol City as a club have fallen over the course of this campaign. You know, the, the home form has been an issue for a while and continues to be so. The away form has kind of followed suit. Uh, under Lee Johnson, they were always a side who 
you felt just failed to break their way into the playoffs. And now, where they are here, unless Nigel Pearson does a huge job in the summer, they have to be seen as one of the favourites for relegation next season because of how poor their form has been over the past 42 games. So they have it all to do. And I feel like the club as a whole... Yeah, uh, they're pretty fortunate not to be playing League One football next season and they have those first four performances under Dean Holden to thank for it. One more sad note for the Championship. Losers of the season. Any fans of, of entertainment and the competitive balance that the Championship has become known for? It's the best league in the world. I'm confident of that, but it's not been the best EFL division this season, let alone all of the leagues across the world. Fewer goals this season than any other in the past decade. 2.32 per game. It started low and only just about recovered to that point, to be honest. A chunk of very bad teams, a chunk of slightly less bad, but still quite bad teams, a chunk of quite good teams, but all of them capable of horrendous runs of form. And then Watford and Norwich at the top, really. Um, a group in mid-table, I think, which contribute to my pessimism here. A, a group of teams, a lot of whom just played very uninspiring football, were inconsistent and didn't contribute a, a whole lot to the makeup of the league as a whole. And in terms of competitive balance, well, there's been a lot of focus on the fact that Norwich and Watford have bounced straight back up to the Premier League. Bournemouth are one of the favourites to join them through the playoffs. Those three teams mostly dominated and two of the three promoted from League One went down. And that's always going to be tough for, to take because promotion and relegation and the different names of teams every season that fill those places is part of the rich tapestry uh, of this uh, maddening but glorious division. Uh, and that's not really feeling like the case this season. The cumulative points for the three relegated Premier League sides, 60 more than last season, 65 than the season before, and 103 more than the seasons before that. So it's fair to say that we've been used to struggles for those teams coming down. That wasn't the case this year. Credit to them because those teams have done well, but it has taken away maybe a, a bit of the spice that contributes to such a good league normally. But I will say I'm not doom and gloom about the future. There's a lot of people saying, is it going to be like this forever now? I'm willing to consider this season a one-off impacted in so many ways by COVID and not leap to, to conclusions and to accept that this is going to be how it will be forever. So we go again in August, fans back in the grounds, we hope, and a much better league to watch next season. But next, we're heading to League One. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. 
League One then, where your winners were Hull City and your top scorer was your local Tory MP, Johnson Clark Harris. But these are the real winners, Ali. You kick us off with your first one. And it's got to be a side who are going to be playing, finally going to be playing championship football again next season. That's right, Peterborough United. And, you know, to try and make this a little more niche, I'm going to say the Peterborough United process, if you will, the way that the club operates the way that it has been run for a long time uh, under the ownership of Dara McAntony. And I think the way that they do things has always been applauded by neutrals, but also somewhat condescended. There's a sense of, yeah, it's it's a great way of doing things. It's very entertaining, but it's not going to get you promoted. It's not going to achieve success on the pitch. And I, I couldn't disagree more, really. I think for Peterborough to achieve success on the pitch, if that is trying to become a champions uh, a championship club and stay there then this has to be the way that they go of course they make a lot of money in the transfer market but they spend money as well more so than most league one clubs they are not it's not a case of just hoarding cash from player sales they use it to keep the wheels turning they will spend money where necessary and they do so bravely especially with attacking players. The obvious one to point out here is losing Ivan Tony and replacing him with Johnson Clark Harris, who scored over 30 goals. But you look through their squad and the signings come from all over. There'll be someone plucked out of the National League. There'll be a young player that's fallen out of favour from a top-level club. A- another one who has showed promise elsewhere, but maybe hit a bit of a wall somewhere else. They-, they just consistently are brave and give players a chance. And People like to point to the failed signings. They'll be like, oh, yeah, but for every Clark Harris and Tony, there's a, you know, X and an X. Of course there will be. <laughs> there's no team in the world that gets all of their transfers right. It's not a reason not to do it like this. So I think it's brave. And I think there's not enough clubs being run bravely. And I want to be very clear. I do not want anyone to confuse this with overspending, which can get dressed up as ambition. And which, as we discussed with Sheffield Wednesday, can have more problems down the line. This is a good way to run Peterborough United. It's working for them. And I can't wait to watch them in the championship next season. Choosing my winners. I've chosen a club and a player for my two. And it's difficult because I feel like there are loads of clubs and loads of players who deserve our credit. I'm going to kick off with my team, who I think are the winners of League One. And honourable mentions should go to MK Dons, who under Russell Martin are doing things very much the right way. And I expect to be a force next season. AFC Wimbledon, who I'm excited to see under Mark Robinson as the season goes on. Of course, Burton Albion, who looked dead and buried in League One before appointing Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and then rising up the table. But for all of them, the narrative is strong. The, the, the shifts in the season is strong. But let's not forget Lincoln City, who have to be the overachievers in League One for this season. And they are my winners. You know, you look back, we spoke to Michael Appleton on this show pre-season. And he said to us that he was pretty excited about the campaign ahead. That he felt this group was probably one season short of being contenders at that level. I mean, they are now going into a playoff semi-final against Sunderland, which they will feel they have a very good chance of winning and could be one game away from going up to the championship. This is Michael Appleton's first season in the job. I I still just cannot believe that he was twiddling his thumbs for 18 months after the job that he did at Oxford, uh, waiting for a team to come and pick him up. It's an incredibly shrewd acquisition from Lincoln, despite the style of football that he maybe employs being pretty different to, to the one that Danny Cowley 
brought in at the club. You look at the recruitment last summer, whether it's Brennan Johnson in, in on loan uh, from Nottingham Forest, whether it's Lewis Montsma, the set-piece monster uh, in at centre-back, whether it's Morgan Rogers coming in from Man City in um, in January. What a signing that is. He could have a massive say in the playoffs uh, this coming campaign. Everything that Lincoln have done this season has been the right way. There's been smart decisions and the, the football, you know, they are massively punching above their weight. Uh, Michael Appleton will be speaking to Matt Davis-Adams as part of the playoff preview show next week uh, on the Totally Football League show. So do look out for that. Uh, always a good talker. And I have a feeling they could still surprise a few people yet um, between now and the end of May. Hey, you know what, George? Fans of entertainment were the winners in League One this season. I think this, out of the three leagues, was the one to follow for pure entertainment. Not only the highest goals per game of the three, uh, with 2.62 per game, but an exciting relegation scrap, a, a few different automatic promotion contenders with two teams in Hull and Peterborough ultimately rising above the rest and proving too good. Bit of final day drama as well, with Pompey dropping out and Oxford taking their place in the playoffs. A bit of tactical variation, which I like. That group of mid-table teams that I scolded in the championship. I'd say it's the opposite in League One. There's a group of teams who may not have challenged the top or may not have suffered the nerves of a relegation battle, but all played their part in a number of ways and, and were interesting to watch in a number of ways. Also the highest percentage of away wins in the three leagues as well. Is that a good measure of unpredictability? Probably a stretch, but I'm saying yes for the sake of this argument. <laughs> Fans of entertainment, the big winners in League One. Another winner for me, George. Yeah, Charlie White would have been the obvious choice in um, League One, given he he wasn't the most popular man at the Stadium of Light at the beginning of the season, and 32 or whatever it is goals later, and he's um, yeah he, he could be a Championship striker next season. Johnson Clark Harris deserves praise as well, but I want to single out Dion Charles for some praise, a player who. At Accrington, you know, his first season at Accrington last season, having moved from Southport in non-league, was, was decent enough. He got eight goals. This season, 19 goals for Accrington. A player who, in a front two with Colby Bishop, looks to be developing very, very quickly. On the radar of championship clubs as well, Forrest being linked with him. I think he's out of contract at the end of the season, which is bad news for Accrington Stanley fans, because he's been a breath of fresh air. He's got himself into the Northern Ireland squad, got his first cap there too. You know, he epitomises everything that Accrington are about. You know, coming up from non-league, proving the big boys wrong, a complete, um, you know, a player who combines technical ability with an incredible work rate and physicality as well. He's a player that I've loved to watch. And whilst he may not have hit the the, the, the same level of goals as Clark Harris and, uh, and White, I still think his season has seen a player develop into a really exciting prospect. And, and what a, you know, in, in, in two years to go from playing uh, at Southport to being courted by, by the likes of Nottingham Forest, an, an incredible season for him uh, on a personal level. And a loser here whose very name as part of this section made me sad, but also interested, George. Talk to me about Luke Jeffcott and why he might be a loser of the League One season. He's a loser in, in the literal sense because he has lost things <laughs> over the course of this season. You know, he had such an incredible first half of the campaign for Plymouth Argyle. This is a guy who just 12 months before was playing for Truro on loan. I had an amazing second half of last season for Plymouth as they came up. Started exactly the same way. And by mid-February or early February, he had scored 18 goals uh, for Plymouth Argyle in League One. He was linked to plenty of moves in January, again into the championship for massive fees as well. They didn't come off 
and Ali, since he scored a brace at Fratton Park on the 6th of February, Luke Jeffcott hasn't scored a goal. He has gone uh, for so long without scoring. He's been in and out of the side as well. Ryan Lowe's spoken a great deal in the press about how he needs to get back to scoring. Now, I'm not writing off Jeffcott, not by any stretch at all. He's 21 years of age. He's a goal scorer who's proven that he's got the eye for goal and can do it at this level. But for him, it must be incredibly difficult knowing how close he was to that kind of promised land, to that next move. And that move from kind of a League One team up to the Championship team in terms of what is capable in your career, the money and everything that goes with it, must be incredibly frustrating for him. And maybe that's part of the reason why he struggled for goals recently. Now, I've no doubt that he's going to get back to it. But if you're looking for <laughs> for somebody who whose star had risen so quickly to go on the barren run that he has after all that speculation must be incredibly difficult for him. And for Plymouth, you know, I wonder if there are a few people there wishing they'd taken the money and run in January, but um, but hoping to see Luke Jeffcott back among the goals next season because it's been a torrid couple of months for him. Now one that you can probably copy and paste every year, really, in the EFL. Managerial stability uh, was an issue this season. 13 of the 24 League One clubs changed managers during the season, Swindon, Wigan, Bristol Rovers, Shrewsbury, Sunderland, Burton, Fleetwood, Wimbledon, Northampton, Bristol Rovers again, uh, Ipswich, Doncaster, who had their manager poached by a championship club, Pompey, Charlton, who had their manager poached by a championship club, and Swindon again to finish us off. A, a really tough year in general to manage an EFL team on a number of levels, I think, uh, and we hope that owners will give their managers a little more time next season. Yeah, and one manager who lost his job and then got another job is my second loser. It is Joey Barton, who has said that he might not, he doesn't want to count Bristol Rovers' relegation on his CV because he only came in halfway through the season. I'm afraid that's not really how it works, Joey, um, because after coming into the club, you didn't do a great deal in order to help their fortunes. Again, Fleetwood were a side who under Barton last season were really impressive and it looked to me like Barton was a manager who we could expect to probably move up the pyramid rather than down it. Uh, for whatever reason, the first half of the season didn't go to plan at Fleetwood and he was relieved of his duties. He turned up at Bristol Rovers and after some initially early good signs, things really unravelled there and some of the interviews from Barton towards the end of the season criticising his players' attitudes, like almost exposing them for, for their use of snooze and other things as well. Everything unravelled for Barton over the course of the season in a way that we've kind of become used to in his playing career. Red cards for players at key moments towards the end of the season as well. Things for Barton couldn't really have gone worse this season. You know, he's still a manager who I think is very, very capable and it wouldn't surprise me at all if given a full pre-season, he makes Bristol Rovers a very, very good side uh, in League Two next season should he still be there. But looking at, you know, he's got a sacking and a relegation on his CV in, in one campaign. It doesn't get much worse than that. Now that's League One done. One more stop on our look back over the season. It's League Two coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time from Muddy Knees Media and The Athletic. Well, in League Two, absolutely no one 
predicted that Cambridge would be a, a promotion candidate, let alone actually get their automatically incredible achievement. I think we had them 16th in our pre-season predictions. A couple of people had them higher. Many people had them even lower than that. But almost everyone had Bolton as among their favourites for promotion in League Two under new manager Ian Ever, of course. And for some time, that looked like another miscued prediction. But what an end of the campaign they had, securing automatic promotion at the first time of asking back into League One. And I got the chance to speak with the chief architect himself, Ian Everett, all about this roller coaster season that they've had. So good to be joined by Bolton Wanderers manager Ian Everett. Uh, Ian, thanks so much for joining us on the pod. Promotion was confirmed at Crawley last Saturday. How have you and the team spent the last few days celebrating that success? I've been a bit slight, well, more, more low-key than the players. The players, <laughs> I think, have had some, some fantastic celebrations, um, but rightfully so because they've worked extremely hard. For me, it was just really reflection on what's been achieved and how we've done it and how we can improve moving forwards. So it's fairly different achieving promotion as a manager versus as a player. You had a, a taste of that quite a few times as a player. What are the key differences in the uh, in the following days? Yeah, I mean, I think the players that I've played with in our squad, Alex Baptiste and Matt Jokes would have told you that I would have been probably crowd surfing like Owen Doyle as a player. Um, but when you're the leader and the manager, you have to have responsibility and there has to be a line there and you know I, I did enjoy Saturday with the players but after that as I said it's about reflection spending time with the family and then thinking about how we can improve moving forwards. Well plenty to reflect on I guess if you're in a reflective mood it'd be great to get your thoughts on a, a few things uh, a few of the factors involved really of all the factors involved in a successful season like this what have you been feeling most proud of over the last few days? As I've changed as a character as I've become older and then become a manager. But I take my joy from seeing other people happy and seeing what it's done for them, especially the people in and around the football club that have been here for many years. Had to, at times, visit food banks to keep surviving. Um, but seeing what it's done to their lives and, and how much happiness it's brought them makes it all worthwhile to me. Um, so that's you know, fantastic that we've actually changed people's fortunes and now they're seeing this club in a much better light. And a lot of that has been down to some fantastic work off the field as well. Since the new ownership group have come in, it feels like Bolton, quite aside from the work that you and the side have done on the field, have really started to put themselves back together over the last year or so. How much of that have you experienced firsthand just as the first team manager, the work that Sharon Britton has overseen as owner of Bolton Wanderers? Yeah, Sharon and the rest of the board have been absolutely brilliant with, with building relationships and trust in the community. And with our fan base again, obviously this club has had a decline for a significant period of time. And during that time, people have been hurt, hurt and burnt by the football club. Sharon's worked extremely hard in rebuilding that faith and trust. And the connection that we have now with the town community and fan base is down to her hard work uh, and down to the efforts that everyone at the football club has put in to, to try and reconnect with the town and community again. Now, the story of your season is fairly well told and, and therefore fairly well known by now. The tough start that you experienced, uh, you were 19th at one point in January, and that was followed by 16 wins in your last 22 games, a, a run the like of which I can't remember uh, covering these leagues over the last few seasons. But just to take you back to the first half of the season, do you have any better ideas now in hindsight of why your Bolton side started 
that slowly? What, what wasn't working early on? I think there's loads of components to why. Um, you know, we we had to recruit a whole new team. The I was new, the staff were new, we we're playing a whole new way in the middle of a pandemic where you can't build relationships with a salary cap that was introduced, which didn't suit us and limited us to what we could spend, which is probably good for Sharon, but not so good for me. So, yeah, I mean, lot, lots of things. And when you throw all those ingredients into the mix, it's going to take time. But with constant repetition, constant belief and positive reinforcement messaging wise, we've managed to turn it around. You know, we've added some quality in January. We're lucky that we had the window to be able to do that and the support that Sharon and the board gave me was fantastic. Um, and since then we've 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 flown, but that's because partly for the adversity we went through early on in the season, you know, sometimes you can create immense team spirit and culture and environment on the back of adversity, and that's what we managed to do this season. Talked about finding it difficult to build relationships because of the well, the the effects of, of coronavirus and the restrictions in place. I think that's really interesting for for myself and for the listeners as well, because from the outside looking in, those are the sorts of things that it's difficult for us to to measure and maybe difficult for us to understand the importance of. What do you mean by uh, well, what are the difficulties in building those personal relationships this season, and why is it so important that you're able to do that in general? Yeah, firstly, let me say that you know, people have had it a lot worse off than us with coronavirus and the pandemic. So in no way are we feeling sorry for ourselves. But what I mean by when you when you sign in a complete new group of players that really don't know each other very well at all, and you're working with them day in, day out, but only on the grass, because, you know, the way we could build relationships in the changing room was different this season. We were social distance. We had to, you know, keep small numbers in the gym, for instance. So for these players to bond without having those times together or having the time of being able to go out for dinner, going out for a drink, whatever that might be, it's been really challenging. And it's taken us a lot longer than what would it normally have taken us without a pandemic. And, and as I said, we, we probably saw the fruits of that towards the back end of the season. Do you feel personally like the Barrow Salona moniker that sprung up last season during your amazing campaign with Barrow in the National League added a little extra pressure on you this season, not just on the expectations of success, but also on the style of football that you'd be playing? The style is just me. That's the way I see the game. So that's not going to change. Um, pressure for me is a privilege. I'm privileged to have this job. I'm privileged to, to be in this sport. I love, I love the game. So for me, I embrace it, take it on board. I'm stubborn in my ways, but also, you know, I believe in myself. I live in a state of certainty about my my skill set. And when you when you like that and you have that mindset and mentality, you know, if you truly believe in it yourself, other people will eventually believe in it too. And that's what's happened this season. 16 wins in 22. I'm just going to keep saying it because it is astonishing. What were the main ingredients in everything clicking to such an incredible extent? What, what was happening in the second half of the season, I guess, that maybe wasn't happening in the first half of the season? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because just the way I am when you say 16 wins in 22 I'm gutted that we didn't win the other six so um, that's just me as a person I'm going over those games in my mind right now thinking how did we not win that game but the way we played second half of the season was extremely pleasing as I said we recruited well in January they added quality and personality to the team and when you get on a winning run you become addicted to it and the players became addicted to winning and that's no bad thing um, their work ethic day in day out was there for all to see and, you know, we constantly improved and kept going. And as you said, 
You don't see these types of runs lower down the English pyramid. You see them at the top end where people spend hundreds of millions. That's fine. You know, they're playing on bowling greens of pitches every week. They're playing against teams that play a certain way. Lower down the English pyramid, when you're going from stadium to stadium, the pitches are completely different. The style of play, you know, some direct, some try and pass it. The wind conditions all play a part. It's challenging, but our players have managed to do that. So that's great credit to them. And the recruitment in January, which you mentioned, was clearly crucial. I'm interested to know, because you were very heavily involved in the, in the January recruitment after a, a bit of a shuffle uh, sort of above you, so to speak, off the pitch. How difficult or was there any difficulty in attracting the sort of players that you were going after, given the league position uh, of, of sort of mid to low, well, bottom half of the table, really, uh, in mid-Jan? I mean, the league position obviously was, was disappointing, but what this club has to offer, you know, anyone with the right mindset in football should want to come and play at somewhere like this. We are blessed with facilities. We have top quality facilities, a huge fan base and a huge history in the game. So, you know, the club sells itself and then it's just my job to sell the dream to these players and they all bought into it. They came and they hit the ground running. I almost feel bad asking this question because you're only four days removed from earning promotion after a, a hell of a slog this season. But what can you share with us about your objectives for League One next season? We want to be promoted. Um, there's no reason why we can't. And again, if you don't have those aspirations or belief, then for me, there's no point taking part in the first place. You know, if you don't believe you can be the best at anything you do, and what's the point in doing it? That's that's where I'm at. That's that's how I see things. So we'll be going all out to try and do the best we can and get promoted next season. And will you be, like in January, heavily involved with all the recruitment decisions made at the club this summer? Yeah, I mean, for me, that's you know what's changed and I will now have the final say in, in all recruitment. And yeah, hopefully I can get more right than I do wrong. Certainly did in January. Let's hope to a, a, another good summer of recruitment for Bolton. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and we really appreciate your time. Thanks, Ali. Appreciate it. Thank you. Triumphant Bolton boss Ian Everett there. Let's talk some other winners. George, hit me. Eight, nine, eight, six, five, five. Ali, what is that? Uh, Maybe it'll help I you if I finish it with 32. Ooh, I think it's something to do with Paul Mullen. It is. That is Paul Mullen's goals over the course of his career. What an unbelievable season for this striker who's never really been seen as a goal scorer. To put that into context again, he played 122 times for Morecambe. He scored 25 goals. He scored 32 goals in 46 games. I'm saying that I am surprised by it. I'm saying I'm pretty surprised by Cambridge's season in total and him and Mark Bonner deserve immense credit. But... Here is an interview with Paul Mullen from straight after they'd won promotion where he not only says that he was expecting this, but also talks about the feeling when he looked up and saw that a stand at the Cambridge United Stadium had temporarily been named after him. Unbelievably, you know, I said to Bonds at the beginning of the season, I'm going to finish top scorer. It was something I believed in, something I knew could happen. Um, I told him before the Fulham game here, I'm going to beat David's grounds record. And then to score a Carlisle and come off the pitch and see that a stand's been named after me, something I, I, I couldn't explain, you know. My son can grow up and to see that a stand was named after his dad, he's, he's, a, he's a record holder for games, he's a record holder in League Two. It, it's something I can't explain. At the end of the game, I, I turned towards the stand and looked, seeing my name, and, and it made me emotional. I, I nearly came to tears. It was something I had to hold back. And 
I, I can't wait for him to grow up and be able to show him. Like that, that's my inspiration is showing him how proud he can be of his dad because I'm proud of him, obviously, like everybody, every parent is of the child. And I, I can't believe how well the season's gone, but it's something I expected to do. It's something I really wanted to achieve and thankfully I've been able to go and do it. Yeah, Paul Mullen there. I mean, anybody doing a winners and losers of, of League Two, having heard that interview, surely has to put Mullen in. What an incredible, incredible story for him. There were a fair few incredible stories in League Two, Ali, weren't there? Yeah, let's talk Morecambe. And look, their season's not done, is it? There'll be a big part of the Totally Football League show playoff preview when that comes out in a couple of days' time. But when it comes to Morecambe, I think we've spoken about it a fair bit. But one last time, let's start with what I think is probably the best, or certainly the most prescient manager quote of the season. This was Derek Adams after Morecambe had beaten the eventual champions, don't forget, Cheltenham Town, on the opening day of the season. I'm trying to change the mindset of this football club. And uh, the mindset is that um, we're trying to be not little old Morecambe. We're trying to be Morecambe Football Club. And uh, we're trying to be bigger and better than, than we ever have been. And uh, that's the mindset I've got to change with a lot of people at this football club going forward. And uh, I think that the supporters want that. They want change. They want us to feel that we can compete against the other teams. Financially, we'll never compete. Uh, you know, that is... Uh, the way it is but uh, on the field you've got 11 players against 11 and we'll compete we had 14 players here today that competed for every ball okay you gave me a little sequence there George how about this 21st 18th 22nd 18th 22nd 4th those are the league positions that Morecambe have finished in League Two in the last six seasons and that sums up the job that Derek Adams has done they're certainly not Little old Morecambe, that's for sure. But he hasn't done that by taking any shortcuts. There are no secrets, I don't think. There are no flashy signings, certainly. They haven't done it by going uber defensive and uber direct and, and trying to nick points that way. In fact, I think by the end of the season, it'd be fair to say Morecambe were probably the best, most efficient attacking team in the league. Now, interestingly, they reacted to last weekend where they did their bit as you say, they won their game, but weren't automatically promoted because so did Cambridge and Bolton. And the three players I heard interviewed all seemed genuinely quite gutted and quite deflated. And that was a small concern, I would say, heading into the playoffs. But of course, there are 12 days to prepare, so plenty of time to get that out of the system. They're up against the absolute wild card that is Tranmere, who have just sacked Keith Hill, of course, and will be going into the playoffs with their, uh, with their caretaker manager, Ian Dawes, in charge. And Morecambe have got three games to go in order to secure what would be the most remarkable of promotions, even if they don't get over the line. They are massive winners of this League Two season, and we have loved following the Morecambe story this year. Yeah, the final winner in League Two goes to Alex Ravel, the Stevenage manager. And this is again where you just have to step back and look at what's happened over the last 12 months for him. He was brought into a Stevenage side at the back end of last season as a rookie manager, having been a player there, and couldn't save them from relegation. For weeks, he was planning to lead Stevenage into a National League campaign until Macclesfield's... Um, punishment, the sanctions uh, inflicted on them meant that Stevenage had a reprieve and were back in League Two for this campaign. Again, a bit of hardship early on. You know, we spoke about it a lot. Stevenage started the season very, very poorly. And looking at the underlying data, it felt like they were being incredibly unlucky. They were putting in decent performances and not getting the results they deserved. And I think we all basically expected the news fairly soon that the manager job at Stevenage was going to become available. 
That didn't happen. And they went on a brilliant run to finish the season. And he deserves immense credit for that. They finished the season in 14th place with a zero goal difference. Given where they were early on in the campaign, that is a remarkable achievement. And he's gone from being somebody whose job was in threat, who we hadn't really seen any evidence of on in terms of results of his managerial ability, to now being a guy that I'm incredibly excited to see manage in League 2 next season. So all credit to him. The under-the-radar pick, maybe, but a brilliant season for him and exciting times for Stevenage. Okay, a couple of losers. Uh, I'll kick off, uh, sadly, by saying that I think Southend, United and Grimsby Town fans have to be losers of this League Two season. And again, like it was with Sheffield Wednesday earlier on in the show, this is said with sympathy because quite simply, these two sets of fans have had to watch their beloved teams be guided or run into non-league by botched governance, basically, by poor ownership decisions, by the wrong people running their clubs and they've had to watch poor teams lose matches consistently all through I follow. I think it's been a really tough season for all fans, but certainly for Southend United, who last watched their team at Roots Hall playing in League One and will next season watch them play non-league football. Uh, and Grimsby Town fans who fought so hard to get their club back into the EFL, only to see them drop through into non-league five seasons later. I feel very, very sorry for them. Uh, and of course, we hope that they both bounce straight back up next season but they unfortunately have to be losers of this season Uh, anyone else for you George Mark Cooper let's look back just two and a half months ago March the 1st 2021 Forest Green are sitting in second position in League Two two games in hand on leaders Cambridge one point behind I think I said on this very podcast I'd be very surprised if Forest Green aren't playing in League One next season and they might still well be but not with Mark Cooper a really poor run of form from then on saw them drop uh, nearly out of the playoff uh, zone altogether it was only three goals in the second half and final day that got them in there but not under Cooper under Jimmy Ball who's the the, uh, the manager at the moment and for Cooper it's hard to really see where he goes from here pretty unpopular with Forest Green fans at the time of his departure. Felt like he always had them knocking on the door of League One, but without really ever getting a side, a very talented side with ample recruitment, closer than than they really should have been. So, I mean, yeah, you're talking about a loser for the season. Can you see Cooper getting another League Two job? Maybe towards the bottom end. And given that he looked set to be a League One manager next season so recently, it's hard to really look past him as being one of those who's, who's lost a great deal over the course of the 2021 season. Salford City, another loser for me, because for the second straight season, they were, well, they were expected to be up there and they certainly weren't that, I'm afraid. Uh, they're finding it difficult to take shortcuts to get out of League Two. Another season of underachievement, despite a busy summer of of attracting the sort of players that would not ordinarily move to League Two for footballing reasons. And very few of them, uh, with the exception of the goalkeeper, Chladki, gave them the value that they needed to punch their way even into the playoffs, let alone the automatics. They didn't make it. And it's an interesting one going forward. There's a lot of talk about... The ambitions of, of course, those that run the club, the class of 92 and Gary Neville, very prominent there. And and what the ceiling is and what the plan is and, and how realistic that is. Because without a decent sized and engaged fan base, I think it, it is going to be quite difficult for them to achieve their goals. Barrow released some eye follow numbers uh, a few weeks ago. It was really interesting. You could see how many individual 
match tickets were bought to watch games against Barrow on iFollow. And Salford sales for their games were 38 tickets bought for the home game and 54 for the away game. And I'm sure that especially that home fixture is not going to be represented too well because there'll be season tickets holders who don't pay for individual games. But regardless, compared to every other team Barrow played, it was hugely noticeable how different that was. So they're struggling at the moment to grow this fan base and to engage it, dare I say, as well. They need success to come. But will they achieve that by continuing to do what they've done over the last two years? I'm sure that Gary Neville is pretty bullish about their chances of success next season. And maybe we'll look a bit silly, but you can't say anything other than they, they were a loser of League Two this season. They didn't get close to achieving what they wanted to achieve. Uh, and they went through two managers uh, during the process of that. So Salford City, do more, do better next season. <laughs> yeah, another club for me for the losers. And it's a team who were in the League Two playoffs last season. And for a fair bit of this campaign, looked to me like they might be getting relegated out of the Football League altogether. It's Colchester United. Now, they finished 20th. They had a brilliant end to the season under Hayden Mullins and Paul Tisdale. So we have to say that. But looking back to last season, you know, parting company with a manager in John McGreal who had taken them to the playoffs, replacing him with Steve Ball, who won just eight of his 34 games, sacking Steve Ball, bringing in Wayne Brown, who won just one of seven, before finally landing on Mullins and Tisdale in order to to guide them to safety. It's been an abject season, a season where they have taken about 10 steps backwards. And the owner of the club, uh, Robbie Cowling, the chairman, released a statement this week um, on the Colchester website. And he is quick to point out the positives of the season, namely... Uh, you know, five or six youngsters who managed to establish establish themselves as first team players: Noah Chilvers, Ryan Clampin, Shamal George, and other players too. And that's all well and good. And I'm excited for Colchester fans that they have these players coming through. But when you're picking that out as being the positives of the season, you, you know there hasn't been a great deal to to shout about on the pitch. And yeah, as a club, they seem to have taken a backward step. But they need to consign this season to history because it's been a very very poor one indeed. And that's pretty much it. That's been the 2021 season. Uh, It's been glorious, yeah. It's felt like a slog at times, for sure. Uh, But what a season it's been in in so many ways. And I will always try to remember the positives, despite so many obstacles for everyone involved. And I don't want to end this show on a sour note, so I'll turn it into some hope, because there has been one massive loser this season, and that's you, the fans, those of you who haven't been able to step outside your front room and support your team in your usual seat, surrounded by your friends at the ground. It's It's been desperately sad in that sense. But I think, I hope, we can go into the next season and for some, the playoffs as well, with the hope and the expectation that this will never happen again. That next season you'll be there, scarf around neck, shirt on or not, roaring your side on, shouting in despair and then heading to the pub to talk about it afterwards. That's the hope, that's the light that we have at the end of this tunnel and that's, above all, what football's all about. We will get there. Thank you so much for joining us on this show all season. The season's not over yet. We've still got the playoffs to go and the Totally Football League show will be with you all the way, kicking off on Sunday with a full preview of these playoffs, the greatest invention in sport, of course, the EFL playoffs. There'll be interviews with Carlos Mendes Gomez and Michael Appleton as well. And we'll be back as well after those first legs to see where we're at in front of the second leg. So stick with Totally and you can't go too far wrong. We'll speak again with you soon. Goodbye. 
You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.